We're continuing our, our mindful series today. We've talked about the practices, rhythms, the rituals that are needed for uh, mental health and wellness. Last week, Sarah talked about the reflections, the different forms of reflection that can be incorporated into a, a mentally healthy lifestyle. And so today, I want to talk about um, the, the, our connection with God that is needed and oftentimes how that actually can be pushed to the, to the back in our pursuit of, of wellness, uh, mental health, emotional healing, and so on. We can actually forget about God in the process. So today, the message is called The Soul's Search for Healing and how that search for healing should cause us to reach out to God first and foremost. So um, we are, what, what's, what's happening and, and why we can't forget that is because we're seeing increasing information that the, the country, our country, people around us, you may be experiencing this too, our mental health and wellness is at an overall decline when you look back the last 20 years. Um, the pursuit of mental health is important, but it's almost as if the more we talk about it, the worse people get. Have you noticed that? It's like the, the more we focus on mental health and wellness, the worse we can actually feel. It's almost like if you grew up in the 80s, um, they had the D.A.R.E. program to teach kids about drugs. And what happened is for some of those kids, it didn't teach them not to do drugs. It actually piqued their interest and curiosity about drugs. And it had a, a backfiring effect on it. And they have had to redo the program. It's kind of like that when, you know, if I tell you not to think about pink elephants, what are you thinking about right now in this moment? Okay, back to Jesus now. Okay, centered on the word. So um, it, it's kind of like that where the more we focus on something that we don't want, the more we end up embracing it or, or, or doing what we don't want to do. So in a recent article in The Guardian, uh, there's an author, Catherine Rowland, shared how an undiagnosed illness led her to turn to the holistic health and wellness industry for answers, and yet she found their explanations lacking. Here's what she said in her article, how we become, became obsessed with wellness. Where conventional medicine shrugs its shoulders to undiagnosable illness, the wellness industry brims with answers. From these sources, I learned I suffered from toxic inflammation, histamine intolerance, mold exposure, sensitivities to chicken, clams, and chocolate. Oh, my goodness. Uh, dormant Lyme disease, heavy metal poisoning. I don't think that's the music. Uh, motherhood, hidden but newly awakened traumas, overstressed, underslept, and nutrition deficiencies. I, I love that motherhood made the list. Like, <laughs> suffers from motherhood. Um, but with these pills and powders and out-of-pocket consultations, along with the exacting combinations of vegetables, broth, and, of course, mindfulness, I would become well. Quote, we have become a self-care nation, Rena Raphael writes, though arguably one that still lacks the fundamentals of well-being. Raphael takes her reasoning a step further and argues that wellness has become a new form of faith. Isn't that interesting? As organized religion has retreated from everyday life, she argues, wellness has rushed in to fill the void. It's providing belonging, identity, meaning, community. These are all the things that people used to find in their neighborhood church or synagogue. Wellness offers some sort of salvation on the horizon. It also offers the illusion of control and empowerment. If you work hard enough and you buy the right things, you'll be saved from disease and aging and anything bad happening to you, she says. Mark Sayers uh, has 
has a quote that I think is brilliant. Uh, secular culture is all about the benefits of the kingdom without the king. And I feel like when in, in pursuit of things to make us happier, wealthier, um, holistically whole without Jesus, it's a secular narrative of I want all the benefits of living in the kingdom of God, but I don't want to submit my life to God at all. So there are twin dangers when it comes to mental health and wellness. The first is that therapy, medication, other forms of mental health care isn't needed. Just pray harder and have faith in God and you'll be delivered. The second is that therapy, medication, other forms of mental health care is all that you need. Trust the industry and you'll reach peak flourishing and fulfillment. And so we want, we want to avoid both ditches. That we don't want to pursue it at all or we want to pursue, pursue only it. We, we want to embrace faith and therapy if needed. We want to embrace Jesus and medication if that's what's going to help balance our brain chemistry. We, we can have a both end approach and not go to one extreme or the other. And what I'll say, and, and Sarah said it really well last week, it, this is a journey that you go on. To find the right therapist or spiritual director or, you know, to, to, you know, surrender different parts of your life to embrace healing from trauma and abuse, to get the right dosage on your medications. Like that is a journey that a lot of people want to shortcut and say, this is the thing to do. This is the silver bullet. And actually it's good news that there are no silver bullets because it means we need Jesus every step of the way. That nothing is going to substitute a relationship to and with Jesus. And Jesus will often lead us in pursuit of mental health and wellness to find specialists to help us along the way. So we, we, want, we want to be aware of the therapeutic wellness gospel. Here's what this gospel says to us. And you'll hear bits of truth pulling at you. To believe the entirety of it. That's, that's how sneaky all of false gospels usually are. Here's the therapeutic wellness gospel. God is, in this form of faith, God is a benevolent light that wants us to achieve happiness through self-actualization. Sin is the failure of self from, self from or hindering others from reaching our full potential. Jesus is a sage who lifted people up to free them from seeing themselves as less than, as below their potential. Holy Spirit is a mystical positive energy that gives us good vibes. I actually made that one up. I don't think the wellness industry pays much attention to the Holy Spirit. But I know there's lots of good vibes sent out there. So I think somehow there's a mystical spirit involved. Community supports us in our quest for fulfillment, but can be discarded if it causes sadness or brings challenge. The Bible is a guidebook with inspiring stories, but needs to be updated for modern education and sensibilities. And the good news of this gospel, so the good news that that tries to, to pull people in and promise them a better future, the good news of the therapeutic wellness gospel says our worth and potential as revealed by Jesus can be realized through doing our work and ridding ourselves of others' toxicity. But... The results from the therapeutic wellness gospel are in. Um, there's an article that said that, that is titled, America has reached peak therapy. Peak therapy. Counseling has become fodder for hit books, podcasts, and movies. 
Professional athletes, celebrities, and politicians routinely go public with their mental health struggles, and everyone is talking, correctly or not, in the language of therapy, peppering conversations with references to gaslighting, toxic people, and boundaries. Have you had those conversations where someone talks in the wellness language? And it's like, I don't know if you're using that right. And it's more kind of like to hold everybody else at arm's length and to do what they want to do in search of wellness. All this mainstream awareness is reflected in the data, too. By the latest federal estimates, about one in eight U.S. adults now takes an antidepressant, and one in five has recently received some kind of mental health care, an increase of almost 15 million people in treatment since 2002. Even in the recent past, from 2019 to 2022, use of mental health services jumped by almost 40% among millions of U.S. adults with commercial insurance. But something isn't adding up. Even as more people flock to therapy, U.S. mental health is getting worse by multiple metrics. Suicide rates have been risen about 30% since 2000. Almost a third of U.S. adults now report symptoms of even, even either depression or anxiety, roughly three times as many as in 2019. And about one in 25 adults has a serious mental health illness like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. As of late 2022, just 31% of U.S. adults considered their mental health excellent, down from 43% two decades earlier. Trends are going in the wrong direction even as more people seek care. Quote, that's not true for cancer survival. It's not true for heart disease survival. It's not true for diabetes diagnosis or almost any other area of medicine, says Dr. Thomas Hensel, the psychiatrist who ran the National Institute of Mental Health. So, again, my point in saying this isn't to warn you away from mental health care. It's to say that pursuit of this only is inadequate, especially for the people of God. To entrust ourselves to mental health care providers and professionals without the adequate faith backing to cling to Jesus in the midst of whatever you're going through will not lead to flourishing and fulfillment the way that God has designed and created us. Okay, So I want to turn to Scripture because I think there's a part in which Scripture, there's lots of parts in which Scripture is is very candid about the struggles of the so-called heroes of these narratives. And I think it really validates the struggles that we experience in this everyday life where we're trying to figure out the next step on our journey of, of mental health care and wellness. So in 1 Kings chapter 18, it'll be up here if you want to read along. This is a story about Elijah. This section is about the, his exploits and how he is one of the, the greatest people known in Israel at, at the time because he's been raised up by God to be the prophet. He's the mouthpiece to the nation on behalf of God. And so he's doing great things. He's multiplying food. Um, he's seeing people resurrected. It's just really crazy stuff that's happening. Uh, miracles all over the place. And he's calling out all the, the fallen leadership that's not following God. So there's a bounty on his head. There's a price. And he, we, we see this in, in chapter 18. There's kind of like this showdown at high noon between Elijah and these false prophets of the false god uh, Baal. So he calls them out and he says this to them uh, in, in chapter 18, verse 22. I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut, them, cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you will call on the name of your God. I will call on the name of, my, of, of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. 
Then they called on the name of Baal for morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. And I love this because Elijah like sees this and he knows what's going to happen. He's like taunting them. He's like, oh, is your God asleep? You, you need to go, like it, maybe he's eating. Maybe it's, it's just his mealtime and you need to wait a little while. And he's taunting them and he's, he's, he's chiding them for believing in this fake false God. And they're doing all this stuff. I mean, they like start cutting themselves and, and they're doing all this weird, wild stuff to get the, their attention of this God to prove that he's the real God. And, and Elijah's just, he's just posted up waiting on him for something to happen. And if you can imagine, like they didn't have movie theaters no TV, no Netflix. Like, this is the show that's going on in the country at the time. Like, people are watching this, and they're, like, waiting. And so everyone's attention and all the pressure is on Elijah to do the right thing. So it continues in 36. He says this. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I, I am your servant, have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, also licked up all the water in the trench. Because he, he, not only did he bring wood around this altar to set on fire, he instructed him to pour water on it. Like wet wood is all covering this thing just because he's taunting them so much. And so the fire of God fell and it falls and lit, like everything is burned up, all the soil around it, it's so hot and so all-consuming. And the point is, like, the Lord God of Israel is the one true God. Elijah is right, these prophets are wrong, and they actually deserve death because of the laws of the land at that time. It's, it's really an intense situation that he's in. And so he comes away with a victory, uh, a, a big W on that one, and, and he walks away feeling pretty good about himself. And then, a couple verses later... Like a couple breaths later, maybe, in chapter 19, it says this. Ahab told, told Jezebel, king and queen, everything Elijah had done and now how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if this time, by, by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. Like the guy that called down fire from heaven. The guy that made it rain when it hadn't rained because of a drought. The guy that is resurrecting people and multiplying food. He gets a message from the queen. And instantly, the high comes crashing down that he's experienced. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under, under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Have you ever been that hangry that you just wanted to die, right? Like, this is, this is intense, though. When you step back, you're like, you can kind of relate to this, right? The, the riding the highest high that you can imagine. Things are going so great for you at work. You, you nailed a presentation and then someone cuts you off in traffic on the way home. The rest of your day is ruined. You're just all agitated and aggravated. You, you get this. I mean, that's pretty minor, right? But you get this. Like, 
Maybe you help like your daughter with a school project. She aces it. She aces her. You're so good at projects, you help her ace her project. And then you get the phone call that your aunt is sick. And it's just devastating. Like, this is just real life for us, isn't it? Like, you you can be so anxious about the next phone call or the next text message. You just live in so much anxiety. Oh, something good has happened? Okay, what's the bad thing that's going to bring me down? Like, you can live with that kind of complex built up in in your mind and in your heart that, well, you know, something, you know, the universe, God, life, whatever it is, circumstances, other people, gives, and it's going to take away. And I can never trust in anything. I can never hope in anything. And in fact, I'd rather just not have any good thing happen to me because I get so much more low when it gets taken away. Like, we, we all get this because this is just, this is life. And again, Scripture, Scripture talks about this openly, candidly. And that's why when you read the Psalms, it, it, it seems like David sometimes it has like manic and depressive episodes in the same psalm. Everything's going great. I'll extol the Lord with all my heart. And then I'm in the bottom of a pit. Where are you, God? And you read that maybe on a good day, right? Or maybe first thing in the morning when nothing has happened yet. And you go, whoa, dude, just kind of calm down. Have some coffee like I'm doing. Have some quiet time. But I'm so glad it's in there like that. Because by the end of the day, oftentimes, I can relate to that, to the ins and outs of everything that's going on. I can relate to the highs and the lows, specifically of the Psalms. But it's not just the Psalms. Scripture's filled with these examples. Moses wanted to die. Great Moses, the deliverer of his people, wanted to die. Jonah preferred to die rather than let God get his way so the Ninevites would repent and and come, come to God. Jeremiah and Job both cursed the day that they lived, or the day of their birth. Abraham doubted God's promise and tried to take shortcuts. Peter doubted Jesus and even rebuked him and the plan of, of the cross and salvation and redemption. These are people not unlike you and me. In fact, James in the New Testament says that Elijah is a weak man just like us. He's got human frailty, human weakness. Elijah is not alone. David is not alone. And the good news is that we're not alone. God understands the weakness of our human frame. And yet, what makes these people different, like Elijah specifically, is Elijah had his depressive episode and prayed to God about it. That's what set these, sets these people apart. It's, it's not that they experience weakness like us. It's what they do with it in God's grace. He wants to die, and he says to God, just let me go. Just take me home now. They bring all of that to God. They don't hide it. Well, I mean, some of them hide it. Abraham, you know, Sarah laughs at God, and Abraham shortcuts it. So even in their not great moments, they still at some point end up taking all of that to God and saying, I, I need your help. You have to do something. I can't do this on my own. That's what sets them apart. And that, that is the example that we're to emulate in these situations. Scripture's filled. It's it's hard to to read the Bible and not find a story of someone screwing up. And then if Scripture speaks well of them, it's because they took all of their screw-ups, all of their hang-ups, 
all of their depressive episodes, all of their anxiety, maybe not all, that's an extreme absolute statement, but you know, most, much, some, some, they took some of it. And God says, that counts. I see that heart. I see that movement towards me. Whatever your hangup is, whatever your episode is, whatever your struggle is, you just bring some of it to me. I can work with that is what God says. So this, this has been the testimony of the church is that we don't, there's no perfect people that inhabit a church, a church community. There's no perfect people throughout church history. If you look at the saints of the last 2000 years, it's testimony over testimony, weak people doing messed up things and bringing it to God for healing. Okay? Churches over the century, in fact, have been places where people uh, expected to find soul healing. Not just healing for the emotions or the mind, but a holistic healing unto soul health. The church community has been equipped with the Bible and with prayer to invite the power of God's spirit for soul care. We're not therapists, pastors especially, but unless you all are therapists, and we thank God for you. Pastors aren't therapists, but there's an expectation that before a pastor was the chairperson of a board, was a weekend speaker or a chaplain to the local community at large, we were soul technicians. So, uh, John Ortberg in his book, Soul Keeping, says this, your soul is what integrates your will, your intentions, your mind, your thoughts and feelings, your values and your conscience. And your body, your face, your body language, and your actions. So your soul is what integrates all of that into a single life. A soul is healthy, well-ordered, when there is harmony between these three entities and God's intent for all creation. When you are connected with God and other people in life, you have a healthy soul. For the soul to be well, it needs to be with God. And that has been... And continues to be our declaration. For your soul to be well, it needs God first and most. Your soul needs connection to God in all of its interior ridges and realms. When God is welcomed fully to do his work, he will do it. It doesn't matter how broken you've been. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter what you did last night or last week. When God is invited in to do his full work, he will do it. It may take time. It will take effort on your part. It will be a journey. But God will order those steps and ultimately bring it all back to him for healing. Romans eight thirty eight says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And you could put in there, update it. Can depression, or ADHD, PTSD, anxiety, can any of those things separate us from the love of Jesus? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through the, him who loved us. I think some of us really, just really felt impressed to read this scripture. I mean, this is a scripture, if you grew up in church, you probably memorized when you were in in the kid's classroom, right? This has been read over and over and over again, but I just really felt impressed that some of us need to be reminded that none of these things that we're thinking or feeling can ever separate us from God's love. 
And that in this, if you're in the fight, if you're on the journey, you are more than a conqueror in Jesus. You are more than a conqueror. It's, it's the, it's, this Greek word is really kind of interesting. It's a word that Paul makes up. It's like, it's, it's, uh, I'm blanking on it because I don't know Greek very well, or if at all. But it's, it's like ultra conqueror, basically. Hyper conqueror is what the literal word means. You're more than a conqueror. You're a hyper conqueror in Jesus. And you can never be separated from his love. He says, he continues, I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither things present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate you. Now, what we do know to be true, though, is that sometimes, though we know we, nothing can separate us from God's love, often we experience a separation from feeling God's love. Isn't that true? That's what a lot of these, a lot of our, our mental health journey anchored in Jesus has needed to help us do is to experience more of God's love. To actually not just know mentally that we're loved, but to know in our inner being, in our soul, in all the interior ridges and realms of our soul that God loves us. And more than that, he likes us. That's why I love that scripture that Justin uh, read from Psalm 18. He delivered us because he delights in us. God rescues you from all of your mental health conditions because he likes you, because he delights in you, because he wants to be close to you. That's the promise. Now, sometimes though church has not been a place where we have experienced God's love, oftentimes, not often, I don't know, but for some of us, I know what's true and I know what's been true for myself from time to time is that church has actually done the opposite thing of God's love. It's actually harmed um, and hurt us. And, you know, I just, I want to acknowledge that, that church and religious leaders haven't always been a place of safety and healing for us. In fact, um, in fact, I want to talk about just for a minute, this may seem like it's out of left field, but I, I hope it connects to us. Uh, I, I want to talk a kind, uh, about a kind of dysfunctional culture that actually allows for and covers for uh, harm and, and hurts in church. And how we at Mosaic, we want to push with our utmost power against a dysfunctional and what I would even say uh, toxic culture. Okay? So, if you'll indulge me for just a second. Proverbs teaches us that uh, we are to trust in the Lord and seek not our own understanding. That's true, right? Because we have, there's sin in our life that we're trying to uncover and overcome. And our hearts sometimes can tell us one thing that's actually different from what God tells us. And discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus is making sure that our, that our whole life, including our soul, including our, our mind, will, and emotions, is surrendered and submitted to Jesus so that if something is out of line, that we bring it back into alignment with God. So, Scripture teaches us from Proverbs, trust not in your own understanding, lean on God. That's true. However... There can be a perversion and a twisting of the scripture so that churches and leaders, and, and not just in church, but other organizations, basically say, you can't trust yourself. The Bible says it right there, plain as day. Trust not your own understanding. Trust us because we hear from God. We know the scripture. And a lot of times we kind of go with it, don't we? We say, well, they're, they're the person who knows the Bible the most. While they seem so connected to God, well, 
everybody else trusts them. And we're ignoring kind of red flags. We're ignoring half-truths. We kind of let stuff slide that we know is out of the character of Jesus. And we, te- we tell ourselves, like, well, they're, they're telling me to trust them, so I need to because they're the authority here. My point in saying all this is that here at Mosaic, we are not your Holy Spirit. And we are not Jesus. I am not Jesus. I love Jesus with, you know, I'm trying to love him with all my heart's, heart, soul, strength, and mind. There are times that I don't. And I need discipleship to Jesus. But no one here can tell you, I hear God better than you do. No one here should be able to tell you, you can't read the Bible for yourself. We know doctrine better, so ignore your own heart, ignore your own gut, ignore your own discernment, however you would describe that, and listen only to us. Those are places where red flags go ignored. And we, you know, you're all very intelligent, smart people. How do intelligent, smart people fall for this? Well, it's a little bit at a time. It's ignoring a red flag. It's hearing a teaching and letting it go unchallenged. It's seeing a behavior and no one calls it out. So you go, well, I guess that's just what we do here. And little by little, it's the frog in the kettle that gets heated up over time. And what happens is in these, like I said, it's not just churches, it's other organizations. They actually start covering for bad behavior. They start making excuses for leaders that say one thing but behave another way. And I I just want to tell you, when you stand before God, and I've said it a couple of times here, Jesus is not going to ask you, what did your pastor say about the Bible? Or, "I, I, I spoke that to you and you ignored it in favor of someone else's advice. When you stand before Jesus, you will stand before Jesus on your own. And so we want to be here a culture. Now, this seems pretty heavy, doesn't it? Man, that's a lot. It was a lot less heavy in my head when I was like preparing it. I'm just, it's, it's kind of a warning. And what I hope you hear is an encouragement of like, God has given you his spirit to live in you. And part of following Jesus is cultivating discernment on your own. So you know how to discern true from false, good from bad, to not ignore red flags, to trust when Holy Spirit is speaking you, to you, to open the scripture and, and say, I can, I can connect with God on my own through the Bible. I can learn how to follow Jesus through the Bible. Now, that's not to say that we throw out everything that church tradition and church community has to offer. Because I'm telling you, if you open the Bible and you go, wow, I found a new doctrine, that's called heresy. That's just, we don't, you know, like, it, there's, good, there's tradition. We stay in healthy bounds of this. We have community that we're bouncing off ideas. Like, I think I'm supposed to move or date this person or take this job. And we submit it to, like, a trusted support system to say, I, I think I'm hearing God. You think so, too. That's not to say we throw all of that away. But it's just to say that nobody should be Jesus for you except the man Jesus himself. Nobody should be the Holy Spirit for you except the Holy Spirit speaking to you himself. There's always checks and balances that God bakes in. But, y'all, if you hear me say something wacky, you need to send me an email or come talk to me. There is no way I want to lead anyone astray. And I tell you what, I'm not right all the time. I've got a family that calls me out on that. And we want to be a church family where no one is above uh, uh, correction. Even, I, I believe, by the youngest believer in Jesus has the Holy Spirit and could read the Bible for themselves and should be able to know or say enough to say, I don't think that behavior is Christ-like. I don't think that doctrine lines up with the Sermon on the Mount. 
That's the kind of culture where everyone is submitted one to another and no one holds all the power or a board or a group, official or unofficial, holds all the power. Because I'm telling you, when that happens, and if we would allow that to be set up, that is a dysfunctional system that just preserves its own power instead of seeking the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, okay? So, would you just commit with me today? This is like bonus. This isn't even in here. Commit to discerning from the Scripture on your own, God's voice. Would you commit to being a person that is at least like reaching out to God in prayer for discernment, what's going on in here and what's going on out here. Now, here's what I know. Moms, especially, you already do this. You, like, I remember talking to a mom one time and I told her, I don't know, I told her about some, like, some, some parenting thing I was going to do. And she was like a decade older than me. And I said, oh, yeah, 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 John's going to be fine. We're going to do this. And she kind of like side-eyed me. Like, yeah, we'll see about that. Like, moms, you already have this baked in. Unfortunately, what in the church we've done is said women's voices aren't as important. And moms, you should ignore the call-outs or the, yeah, we'll see about that. And what we want to do is just call that out of all of us. To say, let's prioritize together hearing the Lord's voice. Taking whatever is troubling us, whether it's a red flag we're seeing out there or, you know, mental health and wellness issue that we're having in here and bringing that to Jesus to increase discernment and accountability. Okay, that was bonus. I need to get back to this and we're going to wrap it up, okay? Um, I do want you to know wherever you're coming from, whatever it is that you're going through, I want to point you to Jesus. Just know this, though he is perfectly God, And he is a perfect human being, like without sin, with just utter perfection. He still drew near to experience the human condition in its fullness. He didn't stay far off in heaven. He didn't just send an angel to accomplish redemption. Jesus came near himself. And he experienced the struggles of mental health, emotional health. Consider this. Just call this the many struggles of Jesus that... You know, in a short list I could, I could think of. He was tempted by the devil in his weakness with power, relevance, and shortcutting his mission. The devil came to him when he was hungry and thirsty and tempted him. People called him illegitimate. There was a rumor that he was an illegitimate son of Mary and a centurion, a soldier. People were questioning his calling, identity, and purpose all throughout his life, all throughout his ministry. People doubted his sanity. They called him crazy. He had deep misunderstanding from his family. His family tried to talk him out of doing what he was doing. He could see angels and he could hear God's voice and nobody else could. How lonely would that be, do you think? He had multiple demands, good demands, pulling on him at once. People needed healing. They needed food. They needed deliverance. They needed, you know, to be freed from Roman occupation. Good things were always pulling out him uh, on him for his time, his attention, and his energy. He sweats blood in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he went to the cross because he had so much mental anguish about what he was about to do. He was betrayed and he was abandoned by close friends on this loneliest night. They all left him. And he endured false accusations in court by religious and national leaders. They had a kangaroo court set up, and he was set up to fail. He endured all of that for you and for me. 
Jesus drew near to us and he experienced this life by embracing mental, emotional, relational, and spiritual struggles that we all can relate to. And he didn't come near to beat sin and death and the devil just to let us figure this out on our own. He knows what it's like to be you. He's been in your shoes and walked your journey. And he overcame. So he can be trusted with whatever it is that is going on in you and around you. And so in the midst of your struggles, whether they're financial hardship, family problems, relational tensions, mental, emotional health issues, God welcomes you to bring all of those to him. That's what he wants. He doesn't want you to go get it fixed first and then come to him. He wants you to patiently and just resiliently come day after day to him to say, let's fix this. Let's work on this. Let's, let's do better this day. That's what he wants. And when you find yourself turning to him, you will find him fully turned to you already. Okay? So with that, um, I want to invite you to stand, and I'm going to have the worship team. Uh, communion service, you can hang on just one minute. We're going to do something. So worship team, come on up. I'm going to have you do something. Why don't you, the rest of you stand with me? Okay? Um, here's a question I want us to chew on, maybe this week, maybe even right now. Is there anything or anyone I'm trusting more than God for healing and fulfillment? Is there anyone I'm seeking healing and fulfillment from that is not God first? Okay? And I just want to mention that next week, uh, Pastor Ben's going to be talking about the support systems, the community that's needed in commu- uh, uh, for flourishing mental health. So what I, I want to do something. I left a little bit of time, so we're going to do this quickly. We're going to do an exercise that kind of gets our bodies activated with this. Okay? And it's sort of this, um, if you're from the charismatic vein or stream, um, this is called an activation. Okay? So we're going to get activated today. So what I want you to do is turn this way. Okay? I want you to turn this way. Right? So this, the stage or behind the stage represents God. Okay? We are not God. We are not Jesus. We are not the Holy Spirit. We're just, we're up here leading worship. They are. I'm not. This over here represents, and you guys can play, you can, you can kind of do your thing if that's okay. Um, this represents whatever it is that you might be trusting in that's not Jesus. Whatever it is, uh, 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 a mental health routine, uh, a therapist, uh, a pastor, uh, a, a, a spiritual director, anything that you've gone to time and again, and, and God has kind of gone to the wayside. You don't seek him as much. You don't pray as much. You're not asking for health or healing as much. You're, you're looking at, it could be medication. It could be, a, it could be a rule of life practice. It could be whatever it is that is actually, you're hoping that fixes you and heals you. And all we're going to do, we're going to pause here for a minute. You can put your hands out if you want to like this. We're just going to pause here and let the Holy Spirit talk to us. Whatever it is we're struggling with that that we might have even made peace with and said, this is always how it's going to be. Holy Spirit, just talk to us right now and reveal to anything that we're trusting in more than God. So just stay in this place. Just be open to him. In a moment... Don't look at me. In a moment, what I'm going to have you do is turn 90 degrees to the left. 
okay? In a moment, I'll have you do that. When you feel like either God has, has spoken to you and he's, when he's said a word or, or brought a phrase up to say, hey, this is something that needs to take second place to put him in first place. When you're ready, what we're going to do is turn 90 degrees and we're going to hand that to God. The stage, again, represents God. It represents standing in front of the throne and saying, here, God, I want you first. I want you most. So when you're ready, you can turn 90 degrees. God, we say, here we are. We're yours. And we seek you first for our healing. We seek you first for our happiness. We seek you first for our health, God. God, we thank you for mental health care. We thank you for medication. We thank you for everything that you've done in our lives. And yet, God, we want to seek you first. So we do that now. We pledge that now. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 So I'll have the... uh, the... Thank you for listening to the Mosaic Church podcast. For more teachings, resources, and other news, please visit mosaicmhk.com.